Hello, and welcome to Dance Talks. I'm your host, Andrea Cody. Today is June 21st, 2020, and my guest is Randall Flynn. Randall is the founder and artistic director of Ad Dam Dance Company. Randall, welcome to Dance Talks. Thanks, Andrea. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's quite an honor. So thank you for having me. Mine too. So would you please introduce yourselves to us and tell us a little bit about your background? Well, I'm old, so that could take a couple of years. <laughs> but yes, uh, so uh, I was born and raised right here in good old Houston, Texas, so I'm a native. Uh, I started my dance training a little bit later on. It wasn't until I was in my teen years, but my older brother and sister that are 10 years older than I am, so now they're ancient, uh, <laughs> they were professional ballroom dancers. Oh. And... Um, Back in the days of the dinosaurs, um, there was a television show in Houston, which was akin to an old show called American Bandstand. And Channel 13 ABC produced this show every Saturday. Well, my older brother and sister were the stars of the show. They were wow. the featured dancers. But cool. again, you know, I was a baby, basically, you know, watching this television show, maybe five years old, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but my family is both Italian and Irish. And just by the way, don't ever do that. <laughs> not, not a good mix, anyone. I'm just warning you. Don't say I didn't warn you. <laughs> but because they are a very family-oriented culture, then the relatives would gather around the television, especially my Italian relatives, and they would have all eyes just like, peeled onto my brother and sister. Yeah. Well, of course, I'm the youngest in the family, and I think there's a rule written somewhere <laughs> that the youngest child is supposed to get all the attention. <laughs> right. So then in my five-year-old brain, I figured it out. Well, they're getting attention because they're dancing. So therefore, if I want to get attention as well, then I dance. <laughs> yeah. So I just started <laughs> Dancing, you know, freestyle, uh -huh. whatever. Uh -huh. But then as I got a little bit older, my sister would like grab me and say, okay, do this with me or what have you. Cool. But, you know, we're looking back to like the early um, or kind of like late 1960s getting into the 70s now. Yeah. And at that point, especially in the state of Texas, where it's cowboy and football and baseball, to be a man and to dance was not the, the norm, um, back in the day anyway. And we didn't have the superhero males of dance back then. So, you know, we didn't have the, the image of Baryshnikov or Travolta or, you know, So You Think You Can Dance or Dancing with the Stars. Uh, so there was the American bandstand thing, but then that was kind of looked at as, oh, that's a hobby but you don't make a profession or a vocation out of this. And then I grew up in a neighborhood that was kind of a rough and tough neighborhood and you know everybody played football. And, um, and so there was also that fear, that peer pressure of, okay, I really love this. I love dancing. I would love to study more about dance, but I'm afraid of the backlash and the bullying that I might receive if I do. So I kind of became this closet dancer in a sense. <laughs> uh, 
you know, at home it was fine because my mom and dad enjoyed dancing, my brother and sister. Um, but, you know, I didn't necessarily want to share with anyone that I had this passion or desire. But then lo and behold, I got information somewhere, I forgot from whom, that Houston was starting a new school called the High School of Performing and Visual Arts mm. and that there would be a dance department. And wow. I just thought, oh my gosh, like that, that would be what I would desire. Well, <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, it's not a happy story. Oh. So, yes. Uh, so I got the application, filled out the application, had the audition scheduled, and I got back requirements right before the audition. And the requirements for male dancers were male dancers will wear black tights and, you know, a dance belt, didn't know what that was, and white ballet shoes. And I just thought, I can't. Like, I can't. My military dad would not get this. My friends would not get this. Uh, even though, oh my gosh, inside my heart, I so long for this. I can't do it. And this was in 1974, if I remember right. And um, during those days, there were zoning laws in Houston. So even though a school may be in close proximity to where you live, you were zoned to the school that HISD told you to go to. So I was zoned to a school that was actually, oh my gosh, at least 15 miles or more from my home. Uh, and it was in the south side of Houston. I lived in the southwest area of Houston, but this was way south. Um, and uh, so at first I was very uh, hesitant, but I got to the school and realized that this school, because even though I grew up in a poor neighborhood, uh, the racial diversity was mainly between poor Caucasians and poor Hispanics. But the Afro-American community was null and void in my neighborhood. Not because they would not have been welcomed, but I don't know, maybe they knew better than to move into my neighborhood. Not because of racial prejudice, but just because of all the bad things that were happening in my neighborhood all the time. <laughs> and uh, so I remember getting off the bus and walking up to the front of the school and I saw so many people standing on the sidewalk with their big old boom boxes and doing all these street dances and line dances. And my eyes just got wide open. But I'm going to be honest, I was a little bit fearful because I thought, man, I would really like to enter into that culture, but will I be accepted? Um, and, but I'm sitting there and I'm watching and you know, the, to be honest, you know, you could see the, the Afro-American community uh, that was sticking together very closely, and you could see the Caucasian community kind of keeping their distance and having their own kind of segregated. But I wasn't interested in what the Caucasian community was doing. They weren't dancing. Yeah. What the Afro-American community was doing Oh my gosh, I just thought it was so free and beautiful. And so I stood there for about 30 minutes, like just frozen. But then I thought, I got to get in. I can do this. I know I can do those dances. So I worked my way in, started dancing. And all of a sudden I hear, 
Go, white boy, go, white boy, go, go, white boy, go, white boy, go. So I made a new realm of friends, beautiful friendships that I had never, ever had that treasure in my life before. So thank you, Afro-American community, for accepting me and sharing your culture with me. Uh, it was life-giving. I um, started a dance club at the school. And all of my students were Afro-American. Um, I joined an Afro-American band. And we were doing cover songs from Rufus and Shaka Khan. Uh, so that was pretty amazing. And, and I loved it. I loved it. Um, I would go to the Afro-American discos and spend countless hours and... Um, and yes, a street dance became my thing. I actually started as a street dancer. Uh, yeah. My big was thing. That, when you say discos, was that an all ages place? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations has run out on this. So okay, yes, so you exactly. got your you got you got in. Cool. I got in. Okay, well we'll just put it that way. I got in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I got snuck in a lot. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, but it was amazing. I, I learned so much. Um, it it freed something inside of me that needed to be freed, and the acceptance was so amazing. Like I I wasn't embarrassed to release that inner dancer in myself. Uh, in that club situation, that disco, uh, it was liberating. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to know more about this style of dance. So I took off to Los Angeles and befriended some incredible people that were a part of a television show called Solid Gold. Um, and then the lead dancer, Darcel Leonard or Darcel Wynn, a uh, gorgeous Afro-American woman. Uh, she became a friend of mine. I would go to LA and I would study locking and whacking and, and that was kind of what I was known for was whacking basically. When, when was this? This was 1978, 79. Yeah. Somewhere it was around that. Called era. that then? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then there were specific studios where street dance was so popular, but outside of the studios, you really learned the techniques in the clubs more than anything. So I became this disco guy. Um, mm -hmm. But how would I say, not, not so much the, okay, I don't want to put things in a box, but not so much the white Caucasian John Travolta disco, but more of the street dance flavor. Um, and, um, so this is what I would travel and teach as well. I would go to LA, learn these techniques. I would come back to Houston and I would teach classes in these particular styles of street dance. Um, what were they but, called? What did you call, you called it disco dancing? Hustle? Disco. Yeah, Not hustle? Yeah, but, or yeah. but, but, you know, hustles were more either the line dances or there was partnering dancing called hustle as well. Right. And I did participate in that, but it was more freestyle, more okay. freestyle street dance, I guess you could say. Yeah. And that when you say disco, um, 
was the music being played disco music like we think of it today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. definitely. Yes, uh-huh. definitely. And there were so many, like, major disco stars at the time. And, mm-hmm. um, and um, cool. so I, I would come back to Houston. I created, actually, a company of street dancers in Houston. We were called the Houston City Dancers. Hey. And we... We performed at so many of the discotheques in the Houston area. Houston uh-huh. used to have tons of discos, like tons uh-huh. of discos. Really? And so it was my company and another company called the Glenn Hunsucker Dancers. And Glenn was one of my yes. mentors. Okay. Um, and uh, we were the ones that were the performers in the clubs. Uh, yeah. So and it was it was funny too because some of the clubs has names like seriously, so we were ongoing performers at a club called Spats, S P A T S. We were another ongoing performing company at a club called Spit. So here's my claim to fame: Spit and Spat. Then there was also Uncle Sam's and Ebony Alons and the Roxy and all these places and uh, so that became my lifestyle. Uh, you know, thank God I never got into the whole drug culture or any of that, but dancing was the thing that was intoxicating for me. Like, I think I was probably out in the discos at least five times a week. And of course you stayed there to two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning and Mm -hmm. just dancing, 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 and dancing. Um, but of course, uh, during the my senior year period that became exhausting uh, <laughs> yeah and uh so again this I'm, I'm turning the wheels back a little bit to 1976 so i found out in my high school that they were offering that in your senior year you could get a work permit and with that work permit you could leave school at 12 o'clock and go and get a job and i thought wow Perfect. So I found out that there was a a studio, a dance studio that was near my high school. So it was hysterical. I walk into the studio and again, I'm 17, I think at the time. And uh, the woman asked, you know, what she could do for me. And I said, well, I'm interested in filling out an application for a teaching job. And she said, okay, so how many years of ballet have you had? Um, Zero. Uh, uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, how many years of jazz dance have you had? Zero. Yep. So do you do you tap? <laughs> uh, no. Do you teach tumbling? Uh, no. What do you teach? I can teach disco. And she was like, uh, <laughs> do you not see my sign outside? <laughs> yeah. And um, she said, I tell you what. Normally, I would not entertain this, but I want to see what you do. And so she had me go into the studio, and I broke out my stuff. And uh, she said, so you can teach this? And I said, yes. And she said, okay, here's the deal. I will open up some classes. We're going to call them Rock Disco. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is 1976. Cool. But, But the commitment that you have to make is to come here at 12.30 and train in ballet and in jazz and in tap. And then you have to be an assistant for my 
children. And I'm not going to pay you anything, but you get free training. And I thought, I want to do this. I so want to do this. So that became my life, like my final probably two months of high school. The problem was, is that this lady really believed in me. And so she wanted to introduce me to the wider Houston dance community. And at the time, in the areas of jazz and modern dance, the big names were Glenn Hunsucker and Patsy Swayze. So those were the two that were known for, mo for jazz dance. Um, and then for modern dance, or modern jazz at that point, was Camille Longhill, Discovery Dance Group. And, and I thought, okay, I want to know these people. So I went to both studios and started taking classes. Um, I became an apprentice in Glenn Hunsucker's company, uh, then later on a company member, and then I also became a company member of Discovery. And it was hysterical because, you know, Glenn was like pure jazz, a mixture of New York styles, of L.A. styles, of Fosse, and Camille was a purist, like very... Ted Sean, uh, a little bit of Gus Giordano, uh, but more of a modern style, where Glenn was more of a showmanship style. So when I would take classes from Camille, I mean, she loved me and I loved her, but for her to, uh, when she would get upset with me, she would go, okay, little Glenn, that's not how we do it here. Uh, little Glenn, let's stop moving the hips. This is not about your hips, Little Glenn. So I was called Little Glenn, which I thought was an, I thought was an honor. So Glenn, right. if you hear this, for me, it was an honor. Cool. But for Camille, she was trying to like <laughs> scold me, basically. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so even though I did not go to the High School of Performing Arts, it seemed like another door opened. Um, but what happened was Glenn had morning classes, uh, that started like at nine 30 or 10 and Glenn said, you should take my morning classes. And I'm thinking, well, I'm still in high school, but <laughs> to my shame, <laughs> the hall of shame right here. Okay. I loved the dancing so much. And I knew it was in my blood. It's what I was born to do. So six weeks before high school graduation. Kids, do not do this. Kids, if you're listening, do not do this. Six weeks before high school graduation. I had the cap and the gown and the ring and the whole bit. Invitations. I quit high school. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Please don't lecture me. <laughs> I won't tell anyone. Okay, please. Well, I'm just telling the whole world right now. Yes. So Randall Flynn, yes, walked away from high school six weeks before graduation to pursue his dance career. <laughs> and did he ever go back? <laughs> That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Uh, now, what is redemptive in this story? Because, um, you know, in the, initially, I had no shame about that. I was this free-spirited, artistic guy. 
later yeah. on in life, it hits you. And you go, man, that's kind of the regret and it bites. But just for me to see what I call the redemptive hand of God in my life, years later, I would go to the high school, and I still do go there. Uh, I love going there as a teacher. Uh, and even I've worked there as a choreographer. Uh, I've also had several professorships in universities. Uh, wow. And I have to laugh, like, <laughs> even to this very day when I walk into the high school performing arts, I have to kind of chuckle and think, man, I'm here teaching today and instructing these students, and this is the school that I so wanted to go to, but yeah. I didn't go because I didn't want to wear tights. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, man. Are they, are they still wearing tights? Of course. Of yeah. course. With no shame. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank God for a new decade of life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's kind of my background. Uh, you know, later on, uh, I kind of moved out of the jazz genre, even though I think it still lives in me. Once in a while, I'll pull it out for my company and they'll go, we didn't know you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, hey, this was my yeah. training. I know. Um, I've seen it from you. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but then I got more into the modern genre uh, studied Graham technique and Lamone technique. And, and I found for me, um, the things that I wanted to share as an older artist found a deeper connection with more of the modern dance techniques, uh, because I wanted to speak about deeper issues, deeper issues of life and relationship. Mm. And, uh, the jazz genre didn't always lend itself as emotionally deep as the modern level did. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that became my thing at that point. So now I guess people recognize me as a modern dance teacher. So. Right. Yeah. Um, how do you describe the, your style? Oh gosh, it's a salad. It is mm-hmm. such a salad bowl. Whenever people take my classes, they go, wait a minute. You had some Graham in there and you've got Lamone in there. You've even pulled out some Horton technique. And then you've got this contemporary jazz thing going on. What's up with you? And yeah. I said, hey, this is just a collaboration of so many different diversities of training. And I try to encourage young dancers with that, like, get a wide range of experience. You know, the Graham technique teaches you so much about groundedness, about theatricality, about working between your legs and taking space. Lamone technique teaches you about succession and flow, fall and recovery. Uh, Horton is just like this strengthening um, technique. There's, there's so much diversity, uh, release techniques, somatics, I mean, on and on it goes. And so I, I tried not to just stay in one particular codification, but to explore different dimensions that could also lend itself to kind of my own stylizations as well. But, you know, to be honest, I think it's a little bit of vain when you think your own stylizations, because let's face it, everything is influenced. Does that make sense? I mean, that's the beauty of art. It's mm-hmm. influenced from others. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that you've invented a style. You've been informed and influenced by others. Mm-hmm. And those are your big influences. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. 
How did the call come in for you to start a Dayum Dance Company? Oh my gosh. Okay, well that, okay, I'm going to make this really short and sweet. I was minding my own business as a professional dancer. And so now, you know, my career basically was in the 80s. And okay, so here's another <laughs> interesting point of history. So two things. So one of my past claim to fames is I was the Texas disco champion. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> Drum roll, please. Uh, I won this in 1981 or 1980. It's the only thing my mother ever kept because I got a big trophy. <laughs> so out of my whole dance career, that's what my mom kept. Uh -huh. I, I actually have it upstairs in my room. Um, cool. And, um, but I got to be known. Uh, I participated in a television show, um, uh, Dance Fever. This is going way back in the day. Um, and so I kind of got to be known in that realm. And there was a, a radio station in the Houston area called KRLY um, Love 94, I think was the call. Um, and they wanted a dance company to open all of their shows for the disco stars that were coming to Houston. Cool. So I got the job. Nice. And so I was working with Cole and the gang and Casey and the Sunshine Band and wow. different artists of the decade, uh, Dionne Warwick, and we would open their concerts. Uh, cool. And, um, and, okay, you ready for this? You want to know the name of the company? Yeah. Are you sure? Are you sitting down? <laughs> the, yeah. the name of the company was The Love Machine. So... <laughs> Randall Randall Flynn's love machine. <laughs> oh yes, we 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 thought we were hot stuff. A lot of the dancers actually came from the um, they had been former Houston Oiler Derek Dolls, I think is what they were called uh, uh -huh. back in the day, and uh, yeah. So so I was living this disco fever life basically. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just how would I say, wanting so much to gather attention and to be seen, to be recognized. The motto of dancers back in the day was fame. I'm going to live forever. And it was all about that. Yeah. And I, I was in that race. Yeah. Um, come on. It, it's in, but to be honest, it wasn't so much about the fame as, you know, narcissistic pride or celebrity it was a need to find affirmation and just for myself personally I was starving for affirmation um, I made a joke about the Italian Irish family but it was no joking matter um, my Irish father um, he actually was mentally ill and he was abusive and there was so much brokenness in my life. I, I didn't know what it was to be loved as a son. Um, and so dance, as wonderful as it was, also became this um, covering of protection. Um, I wasn't getting noticed um, 
you know, I wasn't this guy at school that was big and strong and a football player. And again, back in the day, hey, that's what a man was. I didn't fit that image. So there was brokenness that was there. Um, my father's relationship with me was mm. like, I felt like an orphan. Um, so dancing finally brought some affirmation and worth into my life. So kind of like the character Linus with his blanket, dancing was my blanket. And I was scared to death for anyone to take that blanket from me because I knew there would be a big void in my life. And I feared that. As a matter of fact, one of my most memorable conversations, which was so difficult, one of my ballet teachers, well, actually my first major ballet teacher, her name was Dina Rosenbaum, or people know her as Dina Vell. Uh, Dina was a ballet teacher here in Houston for years and years. She was a student of the Juilliard School, um, just an amazing teacher. And one day she said to me, you know, Randall, you have so many friends, I'm jealous of you. And I said to her, but you know, Dina, my friendships are based on what I do, not who I am. And she said, so you think your friendships are there because of your dancing? And I said, yes. And Dina, if I didn't have the dancing, I don't think I would have those friends. And she said, well, I hope you don't feel that way about me. She said, Randall, I, I value your dancing but that's not why I love you. And she said, I think you've learned to perform for love. And she said, you know, I just want to say to you, you know, Randall, what if something would happen and you could never dance again? And I actually said to her, and I regret this, I would rather be dead. And we were driving, we were on 610. She made me pull the car to the side of the road. And she said, don't you ever say anything like that again. She said, I pity you. I pity you so much that you think that the worth of your humanity is based on your performance. And she said, I, I pray for you that you can be healed of that. Well, her prayer actually worked uh, because it was not all that long later that a friend, uh, there were two situations, but I'll explain one took me to Rice University to a Billy Graham crusade. Now, I'm going to be honest, I didn't know who Billy Graham was. I knew who <laughs> Donna Summer was. I knew who Casey <laughs> and the Sunshine Band was. Rufus and Shaka Khan, but who's Billy Graham? Is yeah. he a disco star? <laughs> uh, so I went. Well, you had tunnel and, vision. I love yeah, it. exactly. I heard <laughs> the gospel for the first time. You know, and you would think that being in Texas, because, you know, we're so, um, how would I say, conditioned with, Christian culture in Texas, uh, kind of the Bible belt in a sense. I had never heard the gospel my entire life. Like, uh, I heard religious things, but, and I knew the law of God uh, that was emphasized in my life, but I had no clue about grace. Grace was not in my vocabulary. I, to, to receive grace, my father did not treat me with grace Dancing did not treat me with that grace. It was all about if you perform well, then you get noticed, but you have to prove yourself. So grace was just not a verb or a noun that was at work in my life. But when I heard Billy Graham speak, I didn't hear a message of law. I didn't hear a message of performance. I heard a message of grace. And, and I thought, okay, I've got two decisions to make. 
Either this is the greatest deception in the entire world or it's the greatest truth in the entire world. And something in my heart knew that it wasn't a deception, that grace was real, and that if there is a God, he must be a God of grace and he must be a God of love. And so I just kind of opened up my heart to that that day. And, you know, there were no firecrackers that went off or anything, but deep inside, at the core of my humanity, I knew something had changed. And I knew that in a way I had tasted of some type of a healing balm that went deep to my soul. And what I looked for dance to appease, um, which basically dance became a band-aid, but it never became a healer. I began to find the healing in this relationship. Um, and for me, that just transformed the way that I saw the world. It transformed the way that I saw my art. Um, when I looked at the gospel, I saw that Jesus's ministry was to serve people that were broken. And he even said, I've come not for the people that are whole, but for the people that are broken. It's the sick that need a physician. So if you're self-righteous, then maybe you don't think you have need of me. But if you really know your own brokenness, then maybe you'll re receive. And I thought, okay, so then Jesus, you came to serve and not to be served. And maybe, maybe I've got the equation wrong. Maybe I was looking to be served and not thinking about serving. And maybe my gift can also be a gift of serving, not a gift of just adulation all the time or promotion or uh, consumerism or industrialism or utilitarianism, but it can really be a gift to serve the brokenness of humanity. And so that became my mission. But I thought, okay, am I crazy? Am I the only dancer that feels like this? Because, you know, back in the day, it was all stars and stripes. And people were looking for that. I'm going to be the American Idol. I'm going to be the winner on So You Think You Can Dance type thing. Um, and I just couldn't connect with that so much. My, my mission felt so unique to that. But I also felt alone in that, to be quite honest. By the grace of God, um, I began to travel all around the world. Never expected that. Um, and in my travels, uh, again, just I call them supernatural uh, divine appointments. I would meet other professional dancers like my friend Steve Rooks, who was a principal dancer with the Martha Graham Company for 10 years, who truly knew the Lord and truly knew the Lord's grace. And at first it was like, when we first met, okay, so we better have professional conversation. But then I realized that we both had this thing in common. And then we were able to talk about our faith. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is life-giving. So Steve was actually one of the first people that I was really able to dialogue, not just about dance in the industry, but about the deeper things of life. And... But little by little, I started to connect with more artists that felt the same way. But unfortunately, as artists, they weren't necessarily being valued within a local church structure, and they didn't always feel welcomed or comfortable because they were a little bit the artistic oddity, and the church didn't really know what to do with them. And sometimes the church also can be codified, so put people in a box. Uh, and artists do not like boxes, <laughs> that's for sure. 
So I began to meet these artists who really wanted to walk with the Lord and know the Lord, but a lot of them had been scarred by structures of the local church. Now, also, I'm an ordained pastor, so I'm speaking as a pastor here now as well, because that has happened. It's just, it's just a reality. But my heart would bleed for these people, and, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be awesome if, if there wasn't a need, in a sense, to make a choice? Okay, so do I, do I grow spiritually? Do I pursue my faith in walking with the Lord? Uh, or do I need to put that aside to focus on my career? And I thought, why should that have to be a choice? Like, mm. no, that's a ridiculous choice. So I thought, wow, God, it would be so cool if there was a community that faith could be discussed, uh, and hard questions about faith could be discussed as well. And people could grow spiritually and at the same time grow in excellence artistically. So I begin to pray about that someone somewhere in the world would create a community like this. Don't pray these things, Andrea, let me tell you. <laughs> because the finger will come back to you and say, do it. So I was in my early 20s. I was 21 years old. I thought, I don't know how to do this. Like, come on. I was Mr. Shake Your Groove thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> how do I... How, I actually won Texas Disco Champion by dancing to Shake Your Groove Thing. Awesome. Just FYI. Ah. <laughs> and I shook it really well, too. <laughs> and, um, so it was grace. Um, I couldn't believe it. You know, back in the day, we didn't have all the Google stuff and the Internet. And yeah. so I just kind of put it out there. Of, okay, who is interested in joining a community like this? And initially, there were about 10 dancers, and those dancers came from everywhere. One guy left the Michael Jackson's Bad Tour to be a part of the company. Another dancer came from Finland. Uh, it was amazing. Like, I never expected this to happen. So that wow. was the creation of the Adeum community. Uh, a beautiful woman became my associate director. Her name is Laura Morton. Now she's a professor of ballet at Belhaven University. But she was dancing at the time with the Delia Stewart Dance Company, which became the Houston Met. And I met Laura when I was choreographing for Delia Stewart. And Laura shared her life with me and her testimony, and we became very good friends. So then she became my co-director for Ideum. Uh, so the initial work of Ideum actually began in the early 1990s, and we were more project-based. Uh, in 2000, we went full-time. And mm -hmm. so now... 2020, uh, we have the main company. We have a second company that Shizu Yoshida directs uh, that we met. She auditioned for us in New York. And then we have a professional development company. And, uh, and by the grace of God, when so many other things have kind of started and stopped here in Houston, um, by the grace of God, he's kept us going. And I'm going to tell you right now, that is not because of my intellect or my ingenuity or my greatness in any way, shape, or form. When I use the word grace, I mean it with all sincerity. It really has been the grace of God upon this community. It's been amazing. Awesome. How are you doing these days? <laughs> 
Well, you know, of course, COVID has its negative effects on all the arts. Um, and I know, you know, people have struggled. We got a lot of stuff canceled, um, of course, just like everybody. So I cannot have a private pity party. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're all in the same boat together. Um, but in the beginning, though, you do pout. Uh, you can be, you know, a little bit. How It's not being childish. It's just, you know, facing the realization of, hey, what the routine that you've been in and what you've depended on got quarantined, basically. And so what do you do? And so at first, it, it hit me hard. Um, but then, to be quite honest, I had to ask myself, because I found myself in a little bit of a state of grieving or mourning, but I really had to be honest with my own heart. And sometimes it's challenging to commune with your own heart. And I thought, okay, what am I really grieving? Am I grieving that we're not on a stage performing somewhere, that we're not having bookings right now, that we're not in dance class, we're not in rehearsals? Is that the true mourning? Is, is that the true brokenness? And, and I realized it's a part of it, but no, it's not the heart of it. And I felt challenged. And again, I'll use the word, I felt challenged by the Lord. Randall, what is it? God, I miss relationship. I miss community. This is what I grieve for. Because take away the sparkles, <laughs> take away all the bling of dance, and what, what am I in this really for? And Andrea, it hit me. It's for community. It's for communion. It's for human connection. And in that human connection, creativity is born. But I am just as guilty as anyone that we get caught up in this creative, productive machine that sometimes we negate the humanity of it all and the purity of the essence behind it. And COVID has beautifully stripped me of the decorations and the accessories. My accessories right now are not in operation. So then I have to find the pure essence of what is there. And what is still there are these gorgeous, life-giving relationships. And I've actually gotten to know my dancers even more, and they've gotten to know me more. Because right now, the conversation is not about the next gig or the choreography. And I'm not standing in the front of the room with my big notepad and writing down every little thing that needs to be altered. But I'm listening and I'm, I'm, and I'm asking not, you know, uh, how I say the question is, or the directive is, oh, can you not do three turns instead of two? But now the directive is, hey, Lindsay, tell me how you're doing. Shizu, what's going on in your life right now? How are you really doing on the inside? You know, and it's, it's interesting because I believe, especially in Western culture, it's become so utilitarian and even if you look at Western mentality in a way, like if you meet someone, okay, so first is the politeness. How are you? Okay. <laughs> but then you want to shut it down immediately and go to the next question. What do you do? So I want you to identify yourself by what you do. Oh, yes, I'm Andrea Cody. I'm the artistic director of Dance Houston. Okay, that tells me... Um, your activities of life. Does it make sense? 
Yeah. But that doesn't tell me who you are. And so it's a little bit ashamed if you think about it that the norm of the times that we get to share about who we are is if we go to a therapist or to a minister. <laughs> then we can really open up who we are and be stripped in a sense of what we do. So it's not that what we do is wrong in any sense of the word, but it's so easy to forget who we are and who people are. You know, I, I say, you know, it, and all directors use this, my dancers. But if you think about it, even that statement is so utilitarian. My dancers, my, my paint brushes, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. No. My friends, these incredible people, I don't want to know them just as dancers. I want to know who they are as people. And if I get to know who they are as people, then more creativity and more artistic beauty will flow from their life. But if I only see them as tools, and if they only see me as a tool of directive, we've cut off so much beautiful flow of life. So COVID has beautifully stripped me of that routine, but it's taught me. And there's been some suffering, but I'm learning that there are life lessons to learn within the suffering because you get back to what really is vital and essential and what really can be, in a sense, embraced. Um, Dance is fleeting and it'll constantly change. I say dance does not make good religion and it doesn't make good faith. Uh, You've got to have something deeper than that. And I call these my COVID lessons. Um, And, you know, I I would think that I would know better, to be quite honest. I should. Uh, I'm I'm a pastor. Uh, I should know better. But I still fall into the trap. And, And pastors can fall into that trap. You can kind of use the people in your church to do the work, the work, the work, utilitarian. There's more than the work. There's the relational side. And I want to nurture that relational side more because I realize if that's what I really need in life, then that's what my artists really need in their life as well. From that nurturing, beauty will arise. But if I get into the machine of just the workload, that beauty will start to decay. And it'll be all about performance and function. And our identity will get, um, how would I say, submerged within that concept. I want to break that box because I think it really is stifling. Mm -hmm. And so some of the ways you're doing that now are these conversations. Yeah, yeah. Creating more in-depth conversation asking different questions from before, Mm -hmm. uh, taking time to listen. I'm an artistic director. What do directors do? They give directives. I'm really good at giving directives, let me tell you. And this whole (laughs) COVID thing has shown me being a director has its curses because when I go into the grocery store, I want to direct everybody. Let me tell you and say, do you not realize you are not keeping enough distance? Let me help you with some choreography here. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, directive. Somebody (laughs) 
give a directive to our city right now. I mean, finally, we did. Thank you, God. But right. it took three months to get a directive that can be helpful for everyone. So Are you referring to the me, mask order that's going into yes, place today? Yes, and, and mm -hmm. the physical distancing order. Yeah. Ah. I'm, I'm thankful that there is a directive. Uh, without directive, I think it's, it's improv. Um, but how would I say, I can't just, as a choreographer, just always work with improv. Improv mm -hmm. serves its purpose, but it's chaos if there's never a directive. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the part of COVID that has driven me crazy here in Houston. Mm -hmm. um, but I do God. appreciate <laughs> the dress rehearsals that we've had, though, because it does take practice to, I mean, yes. we should be able to do this social distancing thing, but like, yeah, it takes some getting used to, you yeah, know, exactly. you, you have to like, look out for the tape on the floor and like, yeah. watch your back. And you know, it's, exactly. it's a new yeah. Yeah. thing. And, see, and, and for us manage. as dancers, we're used to tape on the floor. You we stand are. on quarter. <laughs> it's like, right. that's no big deal for us, but I get what you're saying. And, and I value that as well. And it is, it is a learning curve. There's no doubt about that. So I had to learn to give grace as well. Right. Uh, but I find myself in the supermarket doing choreography. Okay, I'm going to go quasi-devant because this person over here is <laughs> going completely on fosse and they're like aiming at me. So, <laughs> so what does so, that yeah. mean? What are those terms? Uh, I'm trying to go to the, to the diagonal um, and they're trying to make this beeline straight ahead. So I'm making sure that I move to the diagonal that we're not crossing pathways. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about your work in the past. Maybe like describe either your process or like a piece or two so people can get a sure. sense of what you, what you do. Yeah, so um, I think my journey with faith allowed more vulnerability to come forth from my life. Um, being vulnerable, especially in my younger years of life, that was frightening. It was frightening to, to expose yourself, basically. Um, and, but I think with the freedom found in grace, there is, how would I say, it, it's called forth this desire in me to speak the truth uh, of, of my life, of experiences, and especially to find that common denominator of all of humanity. And so much of that common denominator in humanity is brokenness, it's suffering, it's trials. These are realities of life. And even as a culture, we try to hide them. Um, you know, even if you think of our elderly population, okay, let's just kind of put them in the nursing homes and get them out of mainstream culture, and then we don't have to consider so much our own futures if we're young people, that one day we will be these elderly people. Um, and so, how would I say, I think we like to surround ourselves with what we see as pretty or uh, attractive, uh, but we, we want to dismiss ourselves from those things that are more 
deeply painful. Um, and But yet, that is our common denominator. So, what I've journeyed in is to open up that common denominator uh, and find where my gift can be a balm, like a medicine in a sense, that can pour healing oil towards that brokenness. Uh, so for instance, every year we're going to Paris uh, to perform in the place of the Republic, and this is where the horrific terrorist attack happened in Paris. For the, so for the Parisians, anytime they go to this outdoor park, basically, um, they're reminded of that horrific event. Every summer, we turn that place into a place of beauty, and we bring beautiful works of dance that invoke inspiration and hope and healing, not religious, not religious within a box, but truly transcendent and redemptive artistry. Um, and people will just stand out for hours watching the performances. We're there for eight hours. <laughs> it's an outdoor thing. And people are just weeping, 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 and then wanting to talk to us. And we always get, oh, merci beaucoup, merci beaucoup. They're just like so thankful. And then some respond and go, we never realized how art could bring healing to us. Um, and so I think healing would be probably one of the main virtues that is important for me as someone who creates work. Um, I, I wanna find somehow, how can that oil of healing be placed within this component? Um, that people have this, um, place of identity that they can recognize, man, I understand that. Um, and so one of the works that we've taken all around the world, and it actually debuted at Project Dance New York, this was right on the, the heels of 9-11, where people in New York were so broken. And my friend Cheryl Cutlip, she was uh, with the Radio City Music Hall Rockettes. She was also um, a captain of the Rockettes. And uh, after 9-11, because they were working on their Christmas show, and she called me on the phone. Uh, this was a couple of weeks after 9-11. She was on her way to Radio City, and she said, Randall, the city is so different. She said, everyone just looks like a zombie, and you can see the fear. And she said, I'm so burdened. And I said, well, Cheryl, what are you burdened for? She said, well, I'm burdened for the people. I feel like there's a spirit of oppression that has taken hold and a spirit of fear, and I wanna break it. And she said, the only way I know how to break it is to dance. She said, I believe that dance is a weapon against the spirit of fear and oppression. And, mm. and I said, so what do you see? She said, well, I just see artists out on the street, dancers just performing, uh, some street corner, all street corners, uh, like a festival. And I said, Cheryl, that's awesome. Let's, let's do it. And so she went to the city, but this is right at 9-11, like, you know, at, towards the, after it happened. And the, the city manager that she spoke with, he did not want to give her the time of day. Of course, come on, they're inundated with all kinds of things that they're trying to take right. care of. And she said, well, can you just humor me and let me fill out application? 
So she filled out the application. They called her back a few weeks later, and the guy said, who do you know? And she said, what? And he said, look, you had to pull some strings. And she said, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, you asked us for maybe like an hour or two, uh, some street corner in New York, but lady, you're getting Times Square, and we're closing it down, and you have police protection, you have fire protection. Now, who did you call? Who do you know? And she said, okay, I'll tell you. I called my friends, and I asked them to pray. And he said, well, I don't know if I believe in all of that. And she said, well, look at what happened. <laughs> so, but uh, I created a work to a hymn called Be Still My Soul. And uh, Shizu, who's now my uh, director of the second company, she was one of the dancers. And then another dancer that now lives in the UK, his name is Dan Cassette. And oh, when yeah. they performed that work, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, people were just in tears. Like just, you felt this transcendent presence all around you. And I saw what was happening with the people. And it wasn't that they were celebrating the, how would I say, um, the celebrity of the artistry. It wasn't about that. It wasn't that, um, how would I say, it was, these people had no idea who I was, and that was good. They were just receiving. And that so spoke to me. And then someone said to me, you know, I think that your work is very priestly. Um, that, you know, yeah, maybe you're a choreographer, uh, director, but truly there's a priestly assignment over your life. It's very non-traditional. It's not being a priest or a minister like in a traditional church setting, but God has called you as a priest to the culture to bring redemptive beauty and redemptive hope into the culture. And I truly believe that, and I want to be faithful to that. And and I thank God for the grace to be faithful to that, because it's not always easy. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, can you um, minister to us now and, and um, tell us what, you, if we were one of your dancers, uh, what you would like to send us off doing? Wow, wow. Uh, okay, uh, I'll start by sharing this. And this was many, many years ago. For many years, I taught as a modern dance teacher at Houston Ballet. My employer was Priscilla Nathan Murphy. She was my boss. Uh-huh. <laughs> she says, no, we were colleagues. No, she was my boss. Okay. <laughs> and I loved it. She's an incredible boss. And I so admire her. I've known her for years. And... Um, But my class was over, and I was walking down the hallway. This was at the old building. And I saw this young dancer, about 13 years old, and her back, well, she was facing the ballet bar, so her back was to me. But I just sensed that something wasn't right, so I opened up the door, and I heard her weeping. And I I knew her, and I said, are you okay? She said, no, Mr. Flynn, I'm not okay. And I said, can you tell me what's wrong? She said, yes. She said, Mr. Flynn, I started dancing when I was very young, just around my house, and I felt so much joy and I felt so much freedom. And she said, and I I pushed my parents to put me into ballet. And she said, and now I'm here, she was in level eight, 
And she said, and I've lost my joy. And I said, why? She said, because I feel like my whole life is having to prove something. And that I'm no longer dancing just for the joy of dance, but I'm, I'm dancing for acceptance. I'm dancing to uh, win approval. And, and she said, and I feel that. I, I, I feel that temptation. Uh, she said, but I don't know how to break free out of it. And she said, I want to find the joy again. And she said, I feel like I'm being looked at as a machine, but the, the human side of my life is not being seen. And I apologized as an educator, as one of her teachers. I just said, look, I am so sorry. I hear you. I completely hear you and what you're saying is so valid. And yes, this needs to be discussed as well uh, because it, it does happen. It happens a lot and it breaks, it breaks dancers, it breaks artists. So if I could say anything to those that are listening today, it's that my desire for the artist is that they can be seen. Uh, they can be seen on a deeper level uh, and that each of them would be seen um, and that we would all be cautious about the trappings of false identity. Um, who are you or what do you do? Oh, I'm a dancer. Okay, but is that, is that, does, does that summarize all that you are? Because what truly makes you a dancer? What truly makes you an artist? It's your experiences. It's who you are on the inside. It's your character. It's your attributes. It's your integrity. It's your brokenness and your blessings. It's all of the above. It's not five, six, seven, eight. Here's the pirouette. Here's the arabesque. You know what I'm saying? There's so much more than that. And, and I know that that journey can... It's hard. You can fall into this routine of that and associate so strongly with the identity of that because sometimes, even though it's not said necessarily, it becomes this unexpected model. Um, and my hope for all the people that are listening to me that are dancers is that if you have struggled with that or if you can identify it, that this would be a time of healing. And I just feel like right now, just in the world in general, it's a time for healing. It's a time for resolve. Uh, yes, there is definitely a need of uh, racial reconciliation and healing, but I think there's a need for human reconciliation and healing where we have put people in a box and used them, and maybe not maliciously, but in a sense it was usury because it was to exalt our own throne. So not to wash their feet and to serve them, but to, to, to again, to build our own throne. I don't want to do that. And, and I, I want to speak as a director. I apologize sincerely. You know, kind of like what the Afro-American community is saying, and it's true. Your silence only adds to it. So I want to apologize to those dance artists who have ever suffered with this element, basically. Uh, as a director, I just want to stand in proxy as a mediator and say, forgive us. Forgive the directors who treat you just like a machine, uh, who just see you for the value of what you can offer, and if you can't offer that, then you're dismissed. 
Um, I stand in proxy and say, forgive us. Forgive us for that, for not seeing the beautiful human being that you are and to not, to not always give you directive, but to take the time to listen to your heart and not to create in you their image of you, but to help you to become the better image of yourself. And yes, so to that, I would just say to the dance community, forgive us. Forgive the teachers, forgive the directors. Uh, we know not what we do sometimes. And I, I take that from my own responsibility. Sometimes we know, that's what Jesus said from the cross. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and it's, it's true, it's true. My guest today is Randall Flynn. Randall, thank you for being a part of Dance Talks. It's my joy. Thank you for a very open and honest time. I appreciate it. Me too.